This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. It is an extremely cold uh, evening here in Cape Town. Uh, I don't even think I don't even think my my Johnny Walker is going to keep me warm. Um, on the other side of the screen, who's smiling? There is uh, Doctor Peter McCulloch. It's too early in the afternoon for you to be drinking, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite warm down here in Texas. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about it. There's been tremendous changes in the last 15 months or so. And so we have great challenges ahead of us. Hopefully we can help shed some light on the situation as we sit here today. Well, yeah, I'm a professor of medicine and in the United States, uh, medical specialists like cardiologists like myself also practice internal medicine. So I maintain my boards in internal medicine and cardiology. And uh, as a medical doctor, I've always tackled a variety of medical problems, including infections. And I didn't see any difference with COVID-19. I've never been afraid of the infection. I've always treated it early in high-risk patients and helped them mm. avoid hospitalization and death. So it did take strength uh, to overcome really some resistance in terms of thinking, uh, resistance in the medical literature as well as in institutions uh, to overcome that with really some uh, incredibly well-grounded ideas that we can reduce viral replication, we can handle the inflammation due to the virus and then thrombosis and blood clotting and do it early when it's treatable to avoid hospitalization and death. With the context of your history and COVID, um, where, did it, where did it all start? Well, it was back in, uh, in February and March. I underestimated it uh, clinically. I uh, heard about these cases in China. It seemed like it was being overblown. And I was mentioning in the office, I said, boy, this is either gonna be the most overblown um, uh, overreaction to a viral illness or it's going to be Armageddon and it turned out to be Armageddon but indeed it's a serious infection some uh, the clinical diagnosis is secure when we have the the um, traditional uh, signs and symptoms the cardinal laboratory features uh, that in fact it's a real syndrome uh, there are real fatalities due to it the virus does seem to attack patients uh, who are elderly those with multiple medical problems so the viral infection plays a role in the causal pathway to death. Interestingly, those under age 50 without medical problems appear to be relatively untouched by the virus unless it presents with severe symptoms. And again, then we revert to our treatment protocols. Yeah, and what were those treatment protocols back in the day? Well, the first breakthrough protocol I published in the American Journal of Medicine in 2020, and the title of the paper was The Pathophysiologic Rationale for the Early Ambulatory Treatment of COVID-19. And at that point in time, it was clear that there was no single drug that would be able to treat COVID-19 because it involved these three phases of viral replication, cytokine storm, and thrombosis. So we knew we needed multiple drugs, and we knew there wasn't time for large randomized trials or guidelines. Patients were being hospitalized and dying, so we had to get the best, the best minds together, the best ideas to come up with a treatment approach and it was based on signals of benefit that we saw in the literature and acceptable safety. And then this moved along with the follow-up publication in December of 2020 in Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. There we had 57 authors uh, from all over the world. We had uh, featured new data with respect to nutraceuticals, monoclonal antibodies, uh, uh, available antiviral drugs, and then uh, importantly, drugs to modulate inflammation mm. in antithrombotics. So we put it all together as four to six drugs. We rely on this. It basically crushed the curve in the United States in early January before anybody was really effectively vaccinated. And then worldwide, it's consistently worked. It crushed curves in Mexico, recently in India. Anywhere where the virus gets out of control, we need early ambulatory treatment. Remember, early treatment is the only way to reduce hospitalization and deaths. Lockdowns, masks, vac vaccines, they're not actually methods to treat sick patients. Treating sick patients is the key to pandemic response. Well, from there, we got continued traction. There was, uh, turns out to be two US Senate uh, uh, hearings. I was the lead witness at the first, November 19th, Pierre Corey at the second, uh, December 8th. They did a terrific job. JJ Rashter, who had had tremendous experience in the United States with ivermectin. Uh, worldwide, their groups started to form in the United States. It was C19 and FLCC. In the UK, it was uh, the Heart Group and Bird. 
in uh, Italy, treatment domiciliary led by Eric Grimaldi, tremendous. There was actually uh, giant crowds in the piazzas of Italy declaring zero hospitalizations with early multi-drug treatment. Panda out of South Africa, now worldwide, is a terrific organization. And the COVID Medical uh, Network in Australia. So the bottom line is there has really been, this has been a great victory of doctors uh, and other aligned people working together to provide early ambulatory treatment. In the United States, we were scheduled to have 1.7 to 2.1 million deaths. Those were official CDC numbers. We crushed the curve and kept it off at about 620,000 individuals. Almost all of those patients died because they didn't have early ambulatory treatment. Now the estimates are, under sworn testimony, mm. the estimates are 85% of that could have been avoided with early multidrug treatment. Yeah, I, I, but I mean, why? Why Why was that the case? Why was there political interference? Well, there never was the vision by any leader uh, in anywhere in the world to recognize two bad outcomes of COVID-19, hospitalization and death. And if the leaders could have framed the problem that patients were being hospitalized and dying, then they would have put doctors in charge who were finding ways to prevent these hospital hospitalizations and deaths. Because the inability to frame the problem and then the inability to get the right doctors in charge, every country went into a, a, a wrong path, a spiral of just wrong thinking, of focusing on masks and lockdowns, focusing on late hospital treatment or other draconian measures, and then a giant march towards mass vaccination. Mm. This is a global blunder. The focus always should have been on the sick patient. Lockdowns and masks and social distancing be became a media-driven narrative globally, and it still is, and it's completely ineffective. It is completely ineffective. You know, I live in Texas. I'm in Dallas, Texas right now, nice and uh, warm. Uh, today, when I finish up, I'll go out for a run. I'll go swimming. We'll go out to restaurants. We've been open all the way through. Uh, we've never locked down. We're the third largest population in the United States. We have lots of immigrant households, Hispanics, African-Americans, people living in crowded conditions. And you know what? We had COVID-19, but we treated our way through it. And we ended up about 24th among all the states in the United States in terms of number of cases per million and deaths per million. Other states that had more draconian lockdown measures didn't do any better. In fact, it's just the opposite. Those who have lockdowns seem to do worse with COVID-19. The COVID-19 PCR tests, uh, the polymerase chain reaction tests that basically amplify what they can find in terms of strands of RNA in secretions, natural oral secretions, have a value as a diagnostic test, but only in acute sick patients and as a confirmatory test or an, an assistive test, a test in aiding in making the diagnosis. The regulatory agencies only approve those tests for acutely sick patients. The regulatory agencies never approve those tests or clear those tests for asymptomatic testing. So any organization, any travel company, school, government, uh, you know, at the borders, anybody doing asymptomatic testing is, is doing it um, against the current regulatory advice. In fact, the WHO on June 25th said specifically, no asymptomatic testing. We need to stop that because what it's doing, as you implied, is just adding to the false positives. When someone has a low risk of COVID, has no symptoms at all, the nasal PCR test, when it's positive, could be about 90% chances of false positive. And even if someone's asymptomatic and they truly have the virus there, it's confirmed by sequencing, they can't pass it to someone else. There's no asymptomatic spread. And there's been a wonderful paper by Cow, another one by Medwell has shown this. We don't have to worry about asymptomatic spread, and we certainly don't need asymptomatic testing. But one of the things that Australians as well as Americans haven't seen is they haven't seen teams of doctors who are mm. board certified, highly published and qualified doctors working in teams and sharing opinions they haven't seen any worldwide collaboration at all. In a sense, each country has seen uh, basically a medical dictator. And this has been a huge problem. Mm. Can you imagine not being able to interpret the literature on diagnostic testing or have the right experts there, but not being able to understand the, the early treatment results in where we're going? And not only that, but our, our medical literature is far behind. Everything comes out in preprint. So we actually have to evaluate it before it's peer reviewed because we have to act, act quickly to save lives. So it's a whole different ball game now. It's really about working in teams. Mm -hmm. We have to have expert teams on testing, on treatment, on uh, management for contagion control. It's not about a single person. 
And, and anytime you turn on TV and you find a single person uh, mm. basically giving opinions, the audience should be worried. So the United States, Senator Rand Paul is leading the charge on uh, evaluating the emails. I'm just a medical doctor. I'm trying to respond to the critical issues at hand. But my understanding is that this coronavirus, uh, like the MERS and SARS virus, uh, really was manipulated in the lab to become more infectious as well as more virulent in, in this so-called gain-of-function research that took a, a joint in the um, in the receptor in the um, spike protein mm. between the receptor binding domain and the anchoring domain, a joint there uh, that allowed the body's own enzyme called furin to cleave it, and that caused the the virus to more easily enter the body and become more injurious. Interestingly, this gain of function research on the spike protein, this became in a sense utilized for the vaccines because mm. the vaccines all trick the body to you really abnormally make this this gain of function Wuhan spike protein within all human cells. And then those cells express the spike protein on the cell surface, the body attacks its own cells, the spike protein circulates in the bloodstream, uh, damaging blood vessels and causing blood clotting. We've never had a vaccine that had such a dangerous mechanism of action that kind of hijacked the body's uh, genetics in yeah. order to, uh, in a sense, try to evoke immunity. Well, it's only by extension of thought that mm. if uh, if the coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2, in a sense, was a target of, uh, of bioterrorism or bioweapon development, then by extension, um, having the body uh, you know, in a sense, have its genetics hijacked to make the spike protein uh, could be, in a sense, a manifest of the same thing. Now, I have no idea what nefarious intent, if mm. any, there was in all of this. All I can tell you is there's been a lot of people who have suffered. There seems mm. to be, have been a suppression of early treatment, uh, a promotion of fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death, all to promote mass vaccination. And so many are working to try to get down to the details of what's going on. We know the vaccines are failing now. They're failing actually to a large degree with the new variants. And so uh, everything's become very confused and, and disconcerting. Well, we've never had a mass vaccination program under an emergency use authorization declaration. So normally a medical product is made, it's marketed by a manufacturer, it goes through standard regulatory processes, the advertisement and the promotion of the product must be fair balanced with respect to efficacy and mm -hmm. safety. Here we don't have any of that. We have an emergency use authorization. Uh, the manufacturers, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, &J, AstraZeneca, they actually don't have advertising rights. If you notice, they're not advertising the products. It's the government that is encouraging the products and simply saying that they're safe and effective. And it turns out they're neither safe nor effective and there's no fair balance of information. In the United States, we are over six months into the program, and you know there has been no press briefing, nor any formal report on overall safety. And we have 48% of Americans have volunteered for the vaccine and no transparency on product safety. <laughs> and, and there are no long-term safety trials with these, with these vaccines. Well, the original guidance in the United States said 24 months of observation for a vaccine product. That was truncated to two months. And so uh, it was uh, really unclear beyond two months of what would happen with respect to safety and efficacy. And, and because the, um, the messenger RNA and the adenoviral uh, DNA products, uh, in a sense, they uh, are taken up by cells. They mm. produce the spike protein, but we don't know for how long. We don't know if there's a process called reverse transcription or laying down of some DNA off of that RNA template back into the human genome. But what we have seen through one uh, press conference held by Senator Johnson is the late emergence of safety problems. So not only do we have all the immediate safety problems to, to handle, but the late emergence, patients from the original trials that were done after two months and then every, the, the files were closed you know, nine months later, they're emerging with neurologic problems, all different types of deficits. Uh, and it's interesting that the fatal events seem to really hit the elderly, almost like COVID would hit the elderly. But the non-fatal events are skewed towards younger people, these damaging events. In an analysis by Rose and colleagues in the Journal of American Public Health and Science, 
has shown that they skew towards four major organ systems, the heart, the brain, the immunologic system, and the blood system, or the hematologic system. And these injuries are vast. In the United States, we over, have over 400,000 of certified safety reports by the Center for Disease Control. That's bigger, that's bigger than a moderate-sized American city of individuals who have been injured by the vaccine program. Wow. So what, what you're suggesting, Doc, is these vaccines are just not safe yet. I can tell you, I chaired over two dozen data safety monitoring boards for big pharmaceutical programs. I chair some of these boards for different divisions of the National Institutes of Health, including BARDA and NIDDK. So I, you know, I know what I'm talking about in terms of safety. And with our current vaccine program, the safety signal emerged on mortality. That emerged January 22nd. And if we would have had a critical event committee, a data safety monitoring board, and a human ethics board, which we should have for all large clinical investigations before drugs are fully approved. Uh, it should, they should have had those structures. A data safety monitoring board would have shut down the program in February. And I think we would have really curtailed the amount of injury that mm. we saw. We're up to in the open VA ERS system, which scans for death anywhere in these forms certified by the CDC. We have over 9,000 Americans who have died. The analysis by Rose suggests 50% of them die within a couple days of the vaccine. 80% of them die within a week. Uh, we know that um, wow. uh, from this analysis uh, uh, that, again, most of the injuries fall along these lines uh, of these organ injury syndromes. And, and there's been over 21,000 hospitalizations. We have official FDA warnings out for Moderna and Pfizer on myocarditis or heart inflammation. Uh, we have official warnings out for J&J on thrombosis or blood clotting, particularly in the brains of women ages 18 to 48. Uh, just yesterday, another release on Johnson & Johnson, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is ascending paralysis of the legs up to the trunk and to the arms. Uh, these are official warnings uh, that are out. And I, I think that the public really over the world ought to look at this. You know, an analysis by McLachlan et al. from University of London uh, looked at these reports and concluded that 86% of them, in terms of deaths, are related to the vaccine itself. It's pretty clear. People walk into the vaccine center, wow. and, and when they die, 50% die within a couple days, 80% within a week. They're strongly temporally related to the vaccine. The vaccine has a dangerous mechanism of action. It's internally consistent within the United States. It's externally consistent among the EU and in Australia, all over the whole world. So we meet what's called Hill's tenets of causality. People have said, is the vaccine really causing this? I'd say yes, based on the totality of evidence, the vaccine is causing really a record number of safety events. Okay, but but now what? Because people have people in the in the millions upon millions upon millions have been injecting themselves with this. Now what? It, they can't it, it can't be reversed. Well, once the vaccine is in, you're right, it can't be removed. And there's great concern now, especially with the genetic vaccines, that, that we can't undo it. But we know going forward, there's tremendous resistance to vaccination. So in the United States, I mentioned we're 48% fully vaccinated. 52% have said no. We know that the vaccine centers uh, started to decline in terms of rates around mid-April. Now the vaccine centers are largely empty all over the United States. The amount of coercion that we're seeing is extraordinary. Uh, people being offered a million dollars in a raffle, uh, flight attendants being offered extraordinary bonuses if they'll take the vaccine, uh, employees being threatened or fired from their jobs, unbelievable. College, students, college students being threatened that they can't return to campus. Many of these universities don't have a policy. They don't have fair exemptions. Many of the universities are not having the professors take the vaccine. So the, in the United States, the uh, CDC, the NIH, and the FDA, the three major government agencies, they're not taking the vaccine by any type of mandate. So the public should wonder about this. Wait a minute, the mm. government agencies, uh, they're not taking it. They're not mandating it. In fact, the CDC says it shouldn't be mandated. The universities, if the professors aren't taking it, why is it being used in a sense as a social weapon against, uh, against people who have something to lose, like employees or students? Well, let's take early treatment, for example. So the choices would be 
if, if a senior citizen uh, that you know and you care about came down with acute COVID at home, the choices would be uh, you could follow me or Pierre Corey or Eric Grimaldi or any of the leaders on early treatment and you could get sequence multi-drug therapy and have a very good chance of reducing the intensity and duration of symptoms and avoiding hospitalization and death. Or you could believe the CDC, the WHO, the uh, TGA in Australia, and you could do nothing. So if you want to believe them, you could do nothing, and then you could wait until you couldn't breathe anymore, and then you could go to the hospital, be put in isolation, never see your loved ones again, and then potentially die in the hospital. The contemporary rates of death in the U.S. hospitals, if they're sick enough to be in the ICU, is 38%. So you tell me, who should you believe? Uh, I mean, I have to tell you, I see sick patients all day long. Patients want compassion. They Mm -hmm. want care. They want hope. And none of these medicines are hard to figure out. You know, these patients have inflammation. We use steroids all day long for asthma or other inflammatory conditions. They have blood clotting. We use blood thinners. This isn't experimental. This isn't very difficult. When you talk to the average patient, I haven't met a single patient who says, Dr. McCullough, I don't trust you. I'd rather follow WHO and sit around here and do nothing until I'm really sick. I've never had a patient tell me that. Oh, I just realized that I've been saying your surname wrong. I heard you say McCullough, and I've been I've been doing it with the Scottish at the end, the McCullough. I, 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 I profoundly apologize. <laughs> well, you're drinking scotch appropriately uh, uh, from uh, Scotland. And, uh, and I am Scots-Irish. So the, uh, William of Orange, when he came over to um, Ireland from Scotland, that's kind of my line. So I think you're okay. mRNA has never been approved on humans up until now. It's true. You know, uh, mRNA platforms, there's about 24 of them. They've been around the original idea that you could actually uh, trick a body into accepting messenger RNA through a liposome. That goes back to 1987. So this has been around for a long time. There have been nine out of the 24 platforms. They were thought to be uh, potentially uh, utilizable as vaccines. Uh, But they've been in development for um, storage diseases like Fabry's disease, heart um, Uh, cancer, uh, heart failure, and none of them have panned out. And so this idea that we could kind of cobble things together pretty quickly in less than a year and come up with a vaccine is, um, is, it is a stretch to think that's the case. Now, there are um, suggestions through a variety of sources that there was great anticipation that a coronavirus pandemic would be coming and that, that maybe stakeholders were more prepared than what the public thought. Well, shedding would be the idea that once the um, spike protein is being made by human cells, that it would get into the um, interstitial spaces and then into body fluids and circulate. So Ogata from Harvard published a study showing, in fact, the spike protein does circulate after the first injection of messenger RNA vaccines for about two weeks is measurable in blood. And then the Chinese have shown that the virus itself gets into a sweat, tears, other body secretions, the stool, urogenital secretions. In fact, uh, you know, Chinese use anal swabs, and there's a, certainly a lab here in the United States that can recover it in the GI tract. In fact, they use sometimes the sewers of buildings to test if there's COVID-19 coming through. So I can tell you, yes, it makes a lot of sense that the viral spike protein after vaccination is shed. There's been plenty of reports of you know passing on traits of disrupted menstrual periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has been um, uh, some case reports in the VAERS system of, let's say, an ill-advised woman who's breastfeeding, who should not take the vaccine, has been excluded from clinical trials. The FDA and the manufacturers think it's not safe to do, but she signs up and gets the vaccine of actually probably delivering the spike protein through breast milk and then killing the baby. So this has happened. Uh, And everybody should really hear this. You know, pregnant women, women of childbearing potential, COVID recovered and suspected COVID recovered individuals, they were all excluded from the clinical trials programs appropriately by the FDA and the manufacturers. The consent form, the consent form, and I've looked at the consent form in our vaccine center says, there's a checkbox. It says, I'm not pregnant 
and it's my responsibility not to get pregnant for some time after the vaccine. It says it right in the consent form. So this is really up to personal responsibility. No pregnant woman or woman who's childbearing or um, breastfeeding should undergo the vaccine. That's on them. They shouldn't walk up and do this. You and I are, are getting a, a smack on the bottom by Shauna because she says that um, this is not a vaccine. Well, it's certainly the mRNA and the adenoviral DNA vaccines are not traditional vaccines. Now, there are traditional vaccines in COVID. One of them is the CoronaVac or the Sinovac vaccine. That's a whole virus killed vaccine that's been used in China. It's been used in South America. It's not very effective, and it has been directly responsible for the generation of what's called the Lambda variant out of Peru. And there's a very good paper by Acevedo and colleagues that demonstrate it's pretty clear when we vaccinate, it's like giving a narrow spectrum antibiotic, we cause new variants to mm. arise. Just like when the um, uh, Sinovac was also used in some states in India, in Mashtura, India, it really was the spark for the Delta variant there. And now in the United States, given the widespread use of Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, now we have the birth of the Epsilon variant from California. So the vaccines are backfiring in the sense that they are creating these variants. Now, messenger RNA and adenoviral DNA are not traditional vaccines. Sinovac is, and there's a new one called Novavax. That will be a more traditional vaccine, which is an antigen-based vaccine of five micrograms of the spike protein. But at this stage, Doc, should any of us, any of us at any age, be taking any of these COVID vaccines? You know, initially out of the clinical trials in December, January, and February, um, uh, patients would ask me, and my senior citizens, my patients at risk with heart and lung disease, uh, clearly over age 50, most over age 65, I would say, yeah, it looks pretty good. I think you should take it, but it is investigational. And it's purely your choice, purely your choice. And about 70% of my patients took the vaccine, about 30% had already had COVID recovered, or they were younger and you know they didn't take it for good reasons. Uh, but once we had the safety data in by February and March, I could no longer generally recommend it. And since that time, really no one's been enthused in my circles has been mm. recommending it because of the safety concerns. Now the evidence-based consulting group in the UK led by Dr. Lowry has officially recommended to the MHRA in England to go ahead and withdraw all the vaccines from the market. And their conclusion is, that they're not safe for human use. And that's the major consulting body to the World Health Organization. Are you talking about Dr. Tess Lowry? Dr. Tess Lowry, and there's another paper by Mm. Bruno and colleagues, 57 authors, 17 countries, that have basically said, listen, if they can't get a handle on safety with data safety monitoring boards, event committees, and ethics committees, to go ahead and shut down the program. It's just Mm. not safe as being conducted at this time. Yes, and I had a chance to interview Dr. Lowry for the McCullough Report on America Out Loud Radio, and she's a terrific investigator, top shelf. Her analyses are unassailable on ivermectin and unassailable on vaccine safety, and no one can touch the quality of the work that's done from that group. That's the reason why they're the lead consulting group to the World Health Organization. So and I think when Dr. Lowry says, you know, ivermectin should be the base of multidrug therapy, I think the listeners should listen. And clearly when she says it's time to shut down the program for vaccines because of safety, I think the mm-hmm. rest of the, the major regulatory agencies should shut it down. The world would be better off right now if the vaccines were just pulled off the market. Well, ivermectin is a, a drug, again, it's used for um, parasites, scabies, strongyloides, and other um, parasites, but it works by impairing the viral entry of SARS-CoV-2 into the nucleus, but it also has some effect against the dangerous spike protein. And there's been about 60 supportive studies for ivermectin. Um, it's, it's not used alone. It's not a cure for COVID-19, but it's used in combination. In my high-risk patients, I use it but in combination with about four to six other drugs to treat COVID-19. This is particularly effective if it's used early. What are your views on remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine? Well, uh, remdesivir is a um, intravenous uh, RNA-dependent polymerase inhibitor. It's not very effective. It was a failed Ebola drug. And unfortunately, by the time patients go, come into the hospital, they've been sick for two weeks at home. 
When they come into the hospital, it's because of cytokine storm and thrombosis. The virus is long gone. So you can imagine trying to give remdesivir an antiviral, but the viral's not there anymore. It's not going to work too well. And so the studies were very mixed on um, remdesivir. I've certainly had it administered to my patients. It's very toxic to the liver. And I have to tell you, the majority of my patients who got remdesivir, we couldn't get through five days of infusions because of the liver toxicity. And, and HCQ, what about that? Hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is the most studied and used drug for all of COVID-19. It has the most studies. There's over 200 supportive studies with hydroxychloroquine. What we know there, again, is very effective if used early. It works by uh, two mechanisms. One, it impairs the uh, entry of virus in what's called lysosomes from the cell surface down to the nucleus. But it also works to carry zinc in. If it's administered with zinc, it carries zinc in. And zinc is a polymerase inhibitor. So um, hydroxychloroquine has the dual effect. Also, it's a very powerful anti-inflammatory. In fact, it's approved for use against mm -hmm. inflammation in systemic lupus and in rheumatoid arthritis. So that's the reason why hydroxychloroquine is such a useful drug. It, in a sense, has a triple action that no other drug has. And it's supported by all the randomized trials as outpatients when put together. These were all stopped early in a panic when put together an analysis by Ladapo and all showed that there's about a 24% reduction in events just with hydroxy alone. All of the early outpatient observational studies show a giant reduction in hospitalization and death. One of the largest ones from Iran was over 30,000 patients in one study. Yeah. These are massive studies. Now, where hydroxychloroquine has not done so well is small inpatient randomized trials. There, the trials are neutral. They don't show harm. And there's only two of them that are double-blind uh, uh, placebo-controlled, but they have physician-assigned endpoints, which is the oxygen levels. They're not very strong trials. Only 500 patients in the two um, uh, uh, randomized double-blind control trials. So there's not a large enough inpatient trial to show that they don't work. So there's a mixed approach. In the United States, uh, there's a belief that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and they don't use it. I think it's a missed opportunity in the hospital. Other places, it's used uh, very, very assertively in hospitalized patients, and they, they certainly get better with hydroxychloroquine. Very useful. Again, used in combination of four to six drugs. For young people who have present with severe symptoms, we can actually limit the drugs to about five days. The average person my age, it's about 10 days of therapy. Older people expect 30 days of treatment. Trump was right. <laughs> you know, the shortcoming of, of both administrations is they've never been able to articulate the importance of early treatment. Interestingly, Trump got monoclonal antibodies. He got drugs in sequence. Uh, America saw how, you know, he's an older man who's obese, uh, mm. how he breathes through COVID. You'd think that all the administrations and everything would galvanize around early treatment and offer early treatment to all Americans. And I testified in the Texas Senate on March 10th that, you know, to this day in America, patients are given a COVID-19 diagnosis. They're given no access to medications. They don't know how to get these antibody infusions that Trump got. Uh, I pushed for legislation in Texas to at least get a hotline so patients can call and get access to these monoclonal antibodies. The U.S. pre-purchased 500 million doses of these monoclonal antibodies, and it's a sure. tragedy to, to see them laying on the shelf. And you know what? That legislation, within two weeks, was vigorously fought by the Texas Medical Association. They said that they were going to come out against any legislation to help patients with COVID, and they wanted to replace it with the vaccine registry. Well, you know, if it's, if it's censored, uh, most people know nowadays if it's censored, and it's so highly cited, you, the listeners can tell that I'm citing the literature. You can go look up every one of these papers. When it's really factual and highly cited, mm. that's actually what gets censored. So many Why people is now, that? They give censoring awards for high-quality scientific presentations. When it's censored, people even seek it out more so they know it's actually correct. So mm -hmm. we have censorship, and it's actually it's, it's overtly stated. It's called the Trusted News Initiative. So all the media and social media agreed to, in December, agreed to squash any information on early treatment, anything on vaccine safety, in mm -hmm. order to promote the vaccine. So the Trusted News Initiative told everybody that they'll never get any fair information on uh, early treatment, and they won't get any fair information on vaccine safety. So the public is really strongly seeking censored information like this. If you were to put this on, on YouTube, I'm sure it'd be censored. Oh, it's yes. quite valuable.
There's a question here from Brandon. He says, if there is no vaccine, all right, then there will be no potential side effects of a vaccine. Now, that's obviously very self-evident, but there's something very profound in that statement. Um, if nobody takes a vaccine, what do you think will happen? If nobody took a vaccine, the world would be better off. We, we have an analysis from Neeson and colleagues showing the vaccines are reducing the diversity of strains. And so the vaccines are forcing these mutants. So far, the mutants are progressively milder. But sure. boy, if we got a, a deadly mutant, we could be in trouble. So if we stop the vaccines now, we'd stop all the vaccine injuries. And there's hundreds of thousands of them. We would stop the immediate vaccine deaths and hospitalizations, of which there are many thousands of them. And then we would just easily treat our way out of the uh, pandemic. We're not going to get to zero cases. There's going to be, this is going to ultimately end up like a, a common cold. It's going to draw, join the library of common coronavirus colds because the mutations, by the way, keep happening in the gain of function area of the spike protein. So even though they were manipulated in the lab, mother nature is taking care of that and making it less and less toxic each time. It's actually quite interesting what's happening. So it's going to become like a common cold and uh, we'll just manage our way through it with the proven uh, drugs that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to get a small rise in Delta coming up. I've already opined on this uh, for the Japanese, for the Olympics. That's going to happen. In uh, Australia, you're going to have a small bump in Delta. The vaccines are completely ineffective against Delta. So this is really important for all the listeners to understand. Uh, in the UK, where they're doing great job on sequencing, they have 90,000 cases of patients with Delta who have moderate or more symptoms, some hospitalized, and 42% of them have been fully vaccinated. So uh, we know now that the vaccines are completely useless against the Delta variant. They have no effect, and that is the dominant variance. It's 98% of cases in the UK. I think it's just hit 50% of cases in the United States. It's the majority of cases in India and elsewhere. I don't know about South Africa, but even your South African variant uh, in the J&J trials program, even Johnson & Johnson was only 50% effective against South African variant. So the vaccines actually don't work. And so they're not compelling enough for someone else to go out and take a vaccine. And they're certainly not compelling enough for an employer to mandate a vaccine or university yeah, to so mandate scary, a vaccine. Yeah. They just, yep. they just don't work good enough. Well, they don't work. You know, I, if, if there were going to be mandates, if people were really worried about it, maybe they would mandate that only COVID recovered patients could mm. do things like, you know, pilot an airplane or, or you, know, you know, COVID recovered patients would get some special privilege. COVID recovered patients cannot get the illness again. The, the immunity is robust, complete, and durable. Every study shows this. Uh, we have a well-defined case of COVID-19 with, you know, fever, uh, nasal congestion, the characteristic symptoms, and a positive test, that person is immune, and we infer immune for life. There's never been a bona fide second case where that same person, 90 days later, would have, they get sick again, and they would be hospitalized or have you know, a, a solid case and have it confirmed by antigen or sequencing testing. There's never been a second case. And so everything else out there is just conjecture. Like, oh, patients have any antibodies here and there, or you can get it again. Or there have been a, a, some confused cases where someone has a false positive PCR in September, and then they turn around and really get COVID in January. That's not reinfection. That's just misinterpretation of the PCR. So I stand pretty strong on this, that the natural immunity is far superior to vaccine immunity. And if there was going to be any type of social privileging going on, it really have to be based on natural immunity. You mentioned uh, the common cold a few minutes ago. Doc, what happened to flu? Well, influenza, um, in a sense, had record lows, and it may have been just this uh, giant kind of immune uh, infectious uh, crowding, if you will, in the, um, in the overall kind of viral biome of the nasal pharynx where influenza dropped. But, you know, influenza actually may be more um, amenable to social distancing and lockdowns and wearing masks. I think one of the big things that happened is people stopped going to work sick and people stopped getting on subways and planes sick. And I think that was the real mechanism by which so many other illnesses spread. I would wager to say that the common cold was reduced last year. I would wager to say that probably 
other forms of contagious diseases were reduced just because of these general measures. What what would be the repercussions if if vaccines were withdrawn due to safety issues? That's a very interesting question. I think the repercussions would be a wonderful opening up. So we wouldn't have this menace. The vaccines have been positioned as a menace. You know, people don't want the vaccines. Mm-hmm. I mean, patients, people complain about it all the time. Say, Doc, I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid I'm going to die. Everybody knows somebody now in the United States who's died or been hospitalized or injured with the vaccine. No one wants to take a booster. They know it's not safe. So the vaccines are looming as a menace right now. And, and there wouldn't be any repercussions whatsoever. If they got shut down the market, I think, I think there'd be parades in the streets and people would feel liberated and, and just move on with life. Uh, there wouldn't be any repercussions with the pandemic. Uh, we, we need to have early treatment anyway. I told you that Delta, Epsilon and Lambda, they're completely resistant to the vaccine. So they, people get sick, we have to treat them anyway. The vaccine has no impact now. Well, what we know about long COVID is it, it occurs in people with severe symptoms for a prolonged period of time, and particularly those hospitalized in the ICU. Mm-hmm. If someone's sick enough to be in the ICU and they've had no outpatient treatment, and remember, according to World Health Organization and all the aligned organizations, if they had their way, patients wouldn't get a milligram of treatment. So patients who go untreated and then after two or three or four weeks get hospitalized and then they're in the hospital for a couple more weeks, they have probably a 50% chance or more of having long COVID. And long COVID is due to prolonged uh, replication of the virus, spike protein damage in the brain and the peripheral nerves. Uh, it can affect the heart. We know that patients can have an elevation in cardiac troponin. It's not myocarditis, but it's a form of kind of ICU cardiac injury. Patients lose tremendous amounts of weight uh, and they have inanition, uh, this lack of, of energy to even eat. Uh, many of it has neuropsychiatric. And the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, FLCCC, is one of the hero organizations in the United States. They've uh, published their first protocol for treating long COVID, and it does feature the use of some drugs, including ivermectin, uh, including fluvoxamine, which is called a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and SNRI fluvoxamine, which actually has some randomized trial data in acute COVID, and then the use of prednisone or a steroid. And so FLCC, I I give them credit without having prospective randomized trials. People are suffering and they want some base approach. And so uh, I recommend that approach for now. I'm using it in my clinical practice to the best I can. And long COVID could all be avoidable in my view if patients got prompt early treatment and had a markedly truncated period of time with the virus. We know that if untreated, the virus will replicate in the body for about 14 days. Treatment can truncate replication to about four days. You you keep mentioning early treatment as being vital. Sure, but not for everybody. Remember, age under mm-hmm. 50, no medical problems, going to breeze through it. Someone your age, mm-hmm. you're going to breeze right through it. Maybe some nutraceuticals, good nutrition. We're talking about zinc as a, as a mild uh, polymerase inhibitor, 50 milligrams elemental zinc. Vitamin D3, 5,000 international units, some supportive data there. Vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams. And then quercetin or quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. That would be a good base, ride through the illness, and one would get through it fine. That's age 50, no medical problems. And that's about that's about three quarters of the adult population needs no treatment. In fact, those people don't need a vaccine either. But when people are over age 50, medical problems, particularly seniors, watch out. There's, there's, a, there's a greater than 1% an escalating risk of hospitalization and death. I've managed patients in their 90s, in their sure. 90s, 90s, with the sequence multi-drug approach at home, and they were facing probably 80% chance of death or hospitalization, and we've been able to avoid the hospital altogether. They get sick at home, but it takes mm-hmm. good medical management, and sometimes we use home oxygen concentrators, but we get them through the illness at home. Well, both you and I are under the age of 50, so we've got nothing to worry about. (laughs) Well, let's take prevention. So um, obviously the vaccines were designed to prevent the illness, but the vaccines have basically failed at this point in time and they don't prevent the illness. But there are some prevention measures that work. So let's start with the mouth. So it turns out that there are forms of mouthwashes and mouth rinses that work. And so one of the things you can do is just get Listerine, the yellow brand of Listerine, and brush your teeth with Listerine and swish and spit twice a day. That actually has a bona fide antiviral effect, yes. 
And then there's uh, Pavadon iodine throat spray that's been tested in studies, randomized trials, a big one from Singapore, twice a day. Uh, there are uh, peroxide mouthwashes and peroxide mists that you can use in the nose and in the shower and just kind of sniff and, and spit out. And you can actually do some oral nasal hygiene twice a day that markedly reduces the risk of actually contracting the virus. Dentists have been doing this all year long, sure. all year long. And you know what? There's been no outbreaks in dental clinics. And there, you can't have a mask on. They're working on yes. mouths all day long. There's been, so the dentists have been using anti-infective therapies for a long time. By the way, they, they have American Dental Association approves these approaches for Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, and other viruses in the mm -hmm. nose and mouth. So we can use these um, approaches, these topical approaches. And then for prevention, there's two medical uh, interventions that are done in addition to that is hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams twice a day, one day a week. That was started by the Indian Medical Society in India at the very beginning. It's effective. The other is ivermectin, typically about 18 milligrams orally once every five days. Okay. Now, none of these are perfect, but if we use these measures, you can reduce what's called the contagion and reduce the inoculum, meaning that if you are to get COVID-19, you get a small amount of it, you end up with a milder case. I know that it's quite politically incorrect to, to, to mention what I'm about to mention, but what about some very obvious measures like getting out into the sunshine, walking the dogs, um, avoiding sugar, uh, getting into the gym, just normal healthy lifestyle living is we nobody mentions this anymore well let's cover survival of the fittest what you're mentioning is if someone's lean and trim and fit even if they're at an older age are they more likely to survive covid you better believe it they're more likely to survive a pneumococcal pneumonia survive mm. a heart attack they're more likely to survive cancer this has been shown over and over again so covid19 should have been a wake-up call to lose weight and get fit in case your number gets called in terms of contracting COVID-19, mm. no doubt about it. And uh, importantly, uh, uh, the idea of fresh air. So it's been shown in a wonderful study out of Singapore showed that when individuals are outside, the transmission of the virus drops to essentially zero. Sure. So people don't need to wear masks outside. They don't need to be worried. You know, you can, um, our church actually held outdoor services the entire year until it was safe to come back inside. You know what, we never had any outbreaks. We just outside got some fresh air in Texas. That's perfectly fine. I tell people when they get sick, the first thing they should do is open the windows, get fresh air, sit outside as much as they can away from people. It's perfectly fine when you're sick to go for walks and you don't want to keep rebreathing that air. If, you, if you're in a, a closed room and you have the virus, you can fill up the entire room mm. air with the virus. And I worry about New York City and Milan, Italy, and these mm. places, Wuhan, which are very vertical. They All they have is high-rise buildings. No wonder the virus must have contaminated the elevators, these small little apartments and condominiums, the lack of fresh air. A lot of these buildings, you can't even open up the windows. So yeah, fresh air makes a huge difference. That was in my very first paper in the American Journal of Medicine. Open the windows and get fresh air so you don't continue to rebreathe the virus. And don't drive alone in your car with a mask on. Yeah, don't, you know, we, we've seen reports of people, you know, running races and they're wearing masks or driving in a car with a mask on by themselves or even swimming with a mask on. I know you can't make this stuff up. It, it doesn't need to happen. I mean, uh, uh, listen, I, I have a mask here. Uh, I'll show you. I, I, I wear a mask and I'm here in the hospital. So right now when I leave this room, I'm going to wear the mask. Now, why do I do this? Because um, the idea is, you know, I'm working in close proximity to patients. And, and no matter what illness I had, if I had a big sneeze and I couldn't control it, the mask could help just block that big sneeze. And, and doctors wear it. Dennis, we wear them in the operating room in the, in the cardiac catheterization laboratory. We've done this our whole career. It's not a big deal to wear a mask for doctors, dentists, and I think hairdressers and others working at close range. Now, the virus is one micron in size. The, the mask only filters out three microns. So the virus can move in and out. But the purpose of the mask is to reduce that kind of big sneeze. Mm. And, and so I think, I think a mask shouldn't be anyone's signature issue. 
there have been 12 randomized trials of public masking. Like, should you, should you wear a mask out in the, in the store or church or at school? 12 randomized trials, including the Dan mask trial, the most recent one, and it doesn't work. So for COVID-19, public masking doesn't work. Should health professionals, people working at close range, that's fine. But, but you know, should your kids wear masks at school? No. Should you have to wear a mask shopping or at church? Mm. No. In front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? I, I have to tell you, I personally think that something has gone very wrong in the world. The whole medical, the bioscientific underpinnings have been uh, broken. We're off our moorings. We're not having evidence-based medicine. We're not seeing reasonable conclusions being mm. made. We're not even seeing regulatory decisions being followed. I mean, I gave you the example of, you know, there are regulatory decisions that say COVID-19 testing is only for sick people. That's not being followed because people are doing it for asymptomatic people. Uh, you know, the, the vaccines have been offered as an elective offering and they've been quickly mandated. So we're seeing things off their underpinnings right now. There's something going on in the minds of people. There's almost a, a worldwide contagion of a neurosis. A neurosis is some type of disordered thinking that's spreading from person to person. That's probably more contagious than the viruses right now. And this disordered thinking is, I think, rooted in fear, distrust, rooted in anxiety, and it's spreading all over the world, uh, making individuals come up with the most ridiculous decisions, like not treating the virus early, uh, forcing unsafe vaccines mm. on one another, having vaccines divide the workplace and schools, dividing families, having people wear masks when they're you know, driving or jogging or swimming. This type of stuff makes no sense. My crystal ball is, I think we're in for about a three to five year period of, of turmoil. And I think it's mental turmoil in human beings. The types of things I've seen in the minds of people right now is really alarming. And it's most alarming among colleagues in medicine and medical institutions. Uh, the right decisions are not being made right now and people are being harmed. Thank you so much for your time. You are an absolute gentleman and academic and scholar. Thank you. Great Thanks for having me. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfie. The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.